Hello and welcome to Monkey Business, a podcast about the mind. I'm Rosalind Palmer, your host, and I'm a rapid transformational hypnotherapist, clinical hypnotherapist and coach. This is a podcast for you to learn from the successes and failures of others who have tamed their monkey mind or sometimes allowed their chimp to take over. It will give you insights into how they've used their mindset for success and help you navigate your life and achieve better business outcomes. So without further ado, welcome to Monkey Business. I'm Rosalind Palmer and you are most welcome. I'm delighted today to be joined by Mary Story, who is CEO and founder of Rosie May Foundation. Good morning, Mary. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me today, Ross. It's really lovely to, um, to reconnect with you. Yes, so we, we did connect when I was wearing my former hat, really, of being head of marketing and communications for an international charity, and I believe at uh, the radio show, Girls Around Town. So, I'm really delighted to have Mary on Monkey Business today because she really epitomizes the elements of this podcast, which is really about being a successful business leader and overcoming that monkey chatter and internal voice in your head and also the challenges that all of us face in creating successful businesses but also in really self-management and in overcoming adversity in one's life and often turning those difficult times into benefits uh, for others and really Mary you are the poster girl for that story so would you like to just maybe introduce what you do in the Rosie May Foundation to everybody yeah sure Ross thank you the Rosie May Foundation um, was founded in 2004 in response to my daughter's murder who was 10 years 10 years of age at the time. Rosie May was um, a charming, um, delightful girl, full of life, full of personality, loved every minute of every day. And when she was brutally murdered by a boy that we knew, our, our life became turned into every parent's worst nightmare. I can't even imagine. And this was what year, Mary? This was 2003. And it was just before Christmas, was that right? It was. It was leading up to Christmas. It was um, a a Christmas uh, gathering of um, friends at a friend's house. And actually it should have been the safest place in the world for us. So in terms of the utter devastation and obviously people listening, as you say, it is every parent's worst nightmare, exacerbated by it being at that lovely time of the year, made even worse by it being in a place that she should have been safe with, with people you knew. In the immediate aftermath of all of that how did you your husband and your family really what was the 
inner strength, the, the grit, those resources that you'd probably never had to pull on quite so much before? What was it that got you through? That's a really good question. And when I think about that, it's it's kind of almost kind of quite difficult to pinpoint. Um, however, um, I think um, we made a decision really early on that actually, although this had destroyed Rosie May's life, that we were not going to let it destroy our lives. So I think that was a very conscious decision and importantly that we wouldn't let it destroy the lives of our um, two children. So, so you know, it was a really conscious decision, I think, that we made there and then to do that. And I believe a lot of people, as they do, you know, it's a bit like what's happened in, in recent times when people are feeling helpless. They, they want to do something publicly. They want to, you know, help in whatever way they can. And I believe quite a lot of people gave you money. So effectively, without really planning it, you, you, you are here with this amount of money thinking what should we do to to honor our daughter's legacy and then synchronicity fate I, I do believe it's fate had another interesting uh, turn for you because was that true that you were just deciding what to do with the foundation and the money yes it was um, as you say quite rightly we never dreamed of um, of having a foundation actually you know it wasn't it wasn't what we um, thought of um, in the early days and um, we had this money as you say that came in from actually all over the world um, thankfully child murders are rare but obviously high in, in the um, in the media so um, so that happened and we decided to um, just put it to one side actually we just put it into an account it was actually sent for our family however we we felt that um we didn't really kind of want to use it so we put it to one side and then we decided the following year 2004 december 2004 to go um away christmas we didn't want to be at home we didn't want the horrific recollections of the year before so we decided to go somewhere where Christmas wasn't um, celebrated, particularly in the commercial form as it, as it is here. Rosie May being a 10-year-old girl absolutely adored Christmas yeah. and everything about it. So we went to South, Southeast Asia and we were standing on the shore of an island just off the coast of Sri Lanka when the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami hit. So um, that was our catalyst and our inspiration for actually starting the foundation because what happened was we had planted a little palm tree the day before on Christmas Day, a little little tiny sapling, and um, thinking that that would have obviously been destroyed by the, by the wave, we went back to look for it um, after the wave had gone, and there it was, and there it stood completely untouched with debris swirling all around it and we felt at that moment at that very moment you know that was our inspiration to um you know to, to do something as you say to create a living legacy for rosie may and um we came back and um you know we, we saw the death tolls rising on the on the tv 
and we thought, well, you know, maybe this is what we can do. And so our very first project was to open um, children's home in Sri Lanka for girls who had been orphaned as a result of the tsunami. <laughs> it's sometimes hard to carry on with this interview, to be honest, because, um, you know, what you're saying is just so, you know, incredible in terms of life-changing events for people. So, you know, without turning this into a therapy session, <laughs> um, I just want to backtrack slightly because, you know, there we have in, in the space of two consecutive years, two massive traumas, really. You know, my, our daughter has been murdered then the publicity circus, I'm sure, uh, and the legal case alone. I mean, people make movies out of these things. I'm sure that was incredibly difficult to navigate. And then to get away from it all, you go away and the tsunami hits. How, again, I'm going to go back to this mindset, this resilience. How did you not just throw your hands up in the air at that point and go, right, that's it. You know, what else are you going to throw my way? I, I'm, I'm just going to drown myself in a bottle of vodka or, you know, whatever, you know, and I, I'm not criticizing, I'm a therapist, but people, you know, when they're overwhelmed with trauma will often revert to activities that block everything out and that avoid having to deal with it. How did you manage to not do that? What 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 kept you going? What what inner voice, what inner grit, inner faith, inner wisdom kept you going through all of those times? I think for for me it was and still is actually all about keeping Rosie Mays memory alive and keeping her her name in the forefront of people's minds and in, in my own mind as well um we i quickly realized that actually when a child dies and then particularly if a child is is murdered obviously that that compounds the stigma that's attached to um, bereavement of a child so People would cross the road to avoid talking to us, to avoid making eye contact with us. So it was, <clears throat> I kind of thought, well, you know, if, if I want to keep Rosie May's memory alive, then maybe what we can do is to create a living legacy that will enable her life to live on through the lives of people that we help. And again, I do want to come on to all the incredibly positive things that came out of this, because effectively the charity and all the incredibly wonderful work you do. Just going back to that thing that you're coping with something enormous by most people's, um, you know, frames of reference, shall we say. And you really have that determination to not let it ruin the rest of your family, your two children, your husband, you, to be a wonderful example to Rosie's memory, to keep her memory alive. But here are people crossing the street, not making eye contact with you. Why do you think, particularly in the West, we're so ill at ease and ill prepared with those difficult life issues with death with bereavement what's your take on that mary i think it's 
think people looked at us and I think they thought, for the grace of God, you know, go I. Um, and I think particularly with our story, it resonated with so many parents because every parent has been to that gathering where they go, there's other families there, they know everybody there, they arrive, the children go off and play with other children and the parents, you know, kind of hang around, chat with each other, that kind of thing. Everybody has been there and done that. And so I think for us, it was just so, the familiarity of it all was so terrifying. To them, yeah, to them, yes. This wasn't a stranger. No, you weren't in the middle of Costa Rica and bandits came and, yeah. No, this was every day. You know, we went out, we left our home as a family of five and came back two days later as a family of four. Yeah. And do you think that's why maybe in present times, you know, and I don't want to obviously get into a massive COVID lockdown conversation, but clearly as a therapist, I'm seeing the fallout from all of this. Do you think that's why people are finding it so difficult? Because the the normal stuff, the everyday stuff, the familiarity is the exact stuff that's been taken away. Exactly, and that, that's causing the disruption, and it, it is. It's just those, those very familiar things that people are, you know, you don't even think about. You've never thought about them, have you? No, having a coffee with a friend or going to the cinema. <laughs> that's right, and that's kind of like what happened to us, you know. Um, you, you know, as a parent, you see these things happening to other people. You never, ever even consider they'll happen to you. You know, why why would you? Why would you? So then when it's that close to home... Yes. You know, I think that's why we had... And you cope, clearly, but other people it's triggering them it's you know like you say there but for the grace of god go i it's like how would i deal with this i have no frame of reference um this is too uncomfortable let me cross the road i mean which is terrible really because i'm sure you would have probably rather people just said you know i'm sorry for your loss or what would you have liked people to have said well, exactly that exactly mm. that just to acknowledge i think it's the acknowledgement um, rather than, you know, obviously just the, how are you? How are you doing? You know, <laughs> you do need, you need that acknowledgement. But, you know, that, and that's all you need, really. And how do you think you stopped falling into maybe, you know, the, the pit of despond and a deep, deep depression? I mean, I heard a very interesting story about a woman who had a stillbirth and she knew the baby was dead, which is just awful and went through the birth and then they were lovely you know and she she held the baby and they took pictures but then a nurse came in and said oh here are your antidepressants <laughs> she said I did I didn't oh, I don't want the antidepressants I, I'm not depressed and the nurse said oh you will be depressed your baby just died and she went no no I will be in grief I will feel like my heart has been ripped out of my body I will you know rail against probably everything God the universe it will be an emptiness that only I can deal with but I am not taking that label and I I do 
feel quite strongly about that story. Not that I'm against, you know, antidepressants or, but I'm probably against labels, really. So how did you manage not to be labeled or put into some place? I think because, you know, as I said, I think because we made that decision right from the outset to be a survivor rather than a victim. And you're absolutely right, you know, um, to avoid the labels. And, um, yeah, I think I think that was for us, for us, absolutely just, you know, just what it was. And that beautiful moment of hope with the little palm tree. So galvanised with that, that hope mm-hmm. and Sri Lanka or the island, was it the island of Sri Lanka? Yeah. Well, how did you set the foundation, the charity up then after that? Well, we set up a, a, a trustees board with, with friends and family and of course you know knew nothing about setting charity up of course um, so we, we did that and um, yeah just kind of worked our way through it really and um, we had great support obviously which, which you know helps and the following year we um, um, well actually the yeah, the following year we went out again uh, on the anniversary of the tsunami so we went back and we met the uh, the, the partner you know the partner charity that um we were you know we were going to partner with for the rosie may home and also we seed funded um another project which we seed funded for a year um before you know their, their, um, their church funding could take over and um Carry on with that funding. So, um, yeah. And was it that same determination to honour her and and really make this a living legacy that pushed you through the? Actually, I have no idea how to create a charity or all these things I have to do because I mean I've worked in a charity. There's a lot of due diligence and a lot of um, you know checks and balances you have to do. So not just raise the money and help the people and do it on the ground but actually all the legislation that comes with it um you know i'm sure there were days that you probably went home and (laughs) wondered what you were doing yeah absolutely um but i made that commitment to dedicate my life to you know obviously to doing this so um so you know i was determined to determined to make go of it and i did as you say, you know, sit at my kitchen table for 10 years doing this and, um, you know, waded my way through it. And, you know, often it is quite a lonely place to be, actually. Um, and then I decided to professionalise uh, myself and the charity um, because it took me 10 years to actually realise, well, that to ensure that the charity was sustainable, that, that Rosemary's legacy would live on forever was that, you know, I had to um, change the model of the charity from being completely run by uh, myself as a volunteer and other volunteers to have, you know, some salaried people on board so that this could actually become sustainable. Yes, so it wasn't just your project, but it became a true legacy. And yeah, and I think that's probably where we met, wasn't it? Was that, yeah, more or less the time we met, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was at that time. So I went back to university as a 50 year old woman (laughs) with the kids and um, did a full time undergrad course in um, global studies. Um, You know, I needed, I felt that, you know, I needed to uh, improve my, um, you know, underpinning my development. 
and linguistics I also uh, read with Global Studies. And then I went on to do an MA in Global Citizenship, Identities and Human Rights. And so that opened many doors for me. And in fact, you'll like this one, Ross. My professor told me that she, she made this analogy of me going to university as my coming out. Oh, I love that. I, I love that. How would you like that? Yeah. Because previously to going to university, everything I'd done was very safe. And by safe, yeah. I, knew, I knew who my audience was. I knew who I was talking to. I knew that my audience knew my story. And that was how I that was how I managed everything. Because I you know, didn't have any surprises, you know, mm. I, I was in control. By going to university, I was that anonymous person. Mm. Nobody knew me. And so I would get those questions, which, you know, I didn't like. Um, and so, you know, that, that was how she made that analogy. And you know what? She was absolutely right, because it was. And, um, you know, it was the best thing, you know, I, I have, you know, could, could have done at that time. And consequently, I had many doors, obviously, for the charity. And but yeah, I loved every minute of it. Oh, I think we, we're going to have to have a different, yeah. yeah, we'll have to have another podcast, you know, scary <laughs> things I have done in my 50s. You know? <laughs> well, I retrained as a therapist and a coach. And then I, um, you know, started internet dating as well. And, you know, look at me now. I'm in the best relationship of my life and I've got this incredible career. So, yes, yeah, scary things we have done in our 50s. But, yeah, so brilliant self-growth as well. And, and I think, sorry, can I no. just say, um, I think, um, you know, when you ask me, you know, kind of how do you do it? I think for me, it is pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. I think that, you know, that ability to take yourself out of your comfort zone every single day. And I do it now, you know, I'm doing it today now to do this with you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, but do you know what I mean? I could have said, you know, well, mm, no, I just not, yeah. you know, but to, but to push yourself out of your comfort zone and, and, you know, in the early days, that might have been just getting myself out of bed, you know, yes. and putting the kettle on. That would have been taking myself out of my comfort zone yep. because how much easier would it have been to stand with the duvet? Exactly. And, you know, so that, I think, is the key thing, you know, for, for, for me in, in, in order to grow, you know, the growth mindset. And it does come from within because, I mean, you know, back, back in those times when you were going through, you know, those bereavements and those shocks and those traumas, nobody would have judged you for not getting out of bed. Nobody. In fact, they probably would have bought you a cup of tea, you know, and said, yeah, Mary, why don't you just stay in bed, you know, for the week? And again, nobody would have judged you for not turning up here today. Nobody would have judged you for having a, a lovely little charity that did a lot of good, but, you know, didn't didn't maybe go to the next level. So I love that that, that has come from within, hasn't it? Because I would have judged myself. Yes, absolutely. So in your current... Um, charity status uh who what are you most proud of who are you helping the most and what are the really heartwarming success stories that make every day worthwhile do you know what i'm proud of every single girl boy woman that you know we have been able to um uplift and 
not only people that we work with internationally, but also people here as well. Um, what COVID has done for us, if we're talking about positive aspects of COVID, yes, it has opened a space for us to be able to work actually in our own local community. Mm. Previously to the pandemic, we worked internationally, we were based here, obviously, UK racial charity, but we worked in our international community. So when the pandemic happened and events dropped off the calendar, we lost 75% of our income overnight, I decided that we needed to pivot that word that I don't actually like that much. But no, it's very trendy at the moment, isn't it? it? <laughs> That's why I'm using it. So we pivoted, we pivoted to um, be able to work with our own communities who are also now in crisis because our mantra is we work with communities in crisis. Right. And so as a charity, it felt very natural for us to want to help the people around us. So we did exactly that. And we had a little pink tucked up who we have called Rosie, has been completely pers personalised, and um, she helps us in the community to deliver essential items to people um, who are self-isolating, vulnerable, and very, very early on, we realised with those deliveries that, you know what, it wasn't about the delivery for, it was about human interaction that we yeah. give to those people who we were the only people that they probably saw, we, most of them. Um, so that doorstep chat, albeit, you know, two metre distance. Exactly, yeah. You know, two minutes away, two, two minutes, ten minutes, sometimes thirty minutes, you know, whatever. I do, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. able mm. to give that, whereas your Amazon delivery, your other kind of deliveries are just dropping and going, aren't they? Yeah. So that, you know, that has become the very essence of what we do. And in terms of mental health and raising spirits and, you know, you know, giving good cheer, that, that's kind of the essence of what we do. And I think particularly now, you know, through the, through the you know, lockdown three, we're doing the same thing again um, as we do in lockdown two as well. And, you know, we will continue this local programme you know, beyond COVID, because now this pandemic loneliness has been... Absolutely, 100%. I write about it a lot. I mean, yeah, you've probably seen... seen yeah, we've yeah. seen it, you know. So, so that's opened up a, a, a new space for us. And, and along with that, obviously, has come new funding, which we wouldn't have had access to previously because we didn't work here mm, in the UK yes. and work in our local community. And obviously, the awareness... You know, I don't think there's anybody now in our community that doesn't know who the race is. <laughs> because you have this bright pink, and, and for anybody listening who doesn't know what a tuck tuck is, yeah. do you want to just explain what one is and yeah. why you and why you have it? Yeah, it's a three wheel three wheel vehicle. Um, it is road legal, um, and we, it was imported from um, India, um, as they are into Sri Lanka. And in Sri Lanka, we use them. They're the, the, the most popular um, mode of transport. And we use them to train the first female drivers to drive them to taxis to provide safety for other women and children. So they are resprayed bright pink so that they are highly visible so that people obviously know exactly what they are and branded so it so rosy is an eye is an exact replica 
what we use in Sri Lanka. So previously COVID, we would use it at events, conferences, mm. schools, education. It wasn't on, she wasn't on the road like she is now. Yeah. So, so Rosie so, yeah. is now on the road and, and really helping break that cycle of loneliness and isolation that is so damning. I mean, it, it will shorten your life. I, I read a report, loneliness can shorten your life as much as smoking 20 cigarettes a day. Um, you know, so, and again, I, I loved the pink tuk-tuks when you had them in Sri Lanka, um, wearing my feminist hat. I love the fact that one of the reasons you did it was because none of those women were being trained because it was a very closed market, wasn't it, for the tuk-tuk drivers. So, they, they couldn't, they couldn't be trained. They couldn't get a tuk-tuk. So, you not only taught them to drive and drive the tuk-tuk but you provided them with one also it's a beacon of that kind of empowerment and also it's a safe vehicle maybe for other women and children because they know that you know there's a woman driver is that right exactly I think that program when you said you know what's my probably proudest um because it ticks so many boxes you know it it's a beacon of hope it, it provides a robust income for the single parent mum drivers it um, ticks all the boxes. It's um, digital inclusion because obviously they're trained to use a smartphone, um, and um, it keeps other women and women and children safe. It is getting women back into the job market. It's breaking gender barriers. It's yeah. amazing. It is amazing. I love it. I absolutely love it. And people could get together to co-fund one of those tuk-tuks, couldn't they? So where can people find out more about you and and how they could help these women and the local communities as well? Yeah, if, if you just go onto the website, rosiemay.com, it's all there. And you can contact me directly through the website. Um, but yes, I mean, we've had groups, we've had Strotomist groups that fundraise for Tuk Tuk um, collectively. We have people that um, dedicate a Tuk Tuk in memory of somebody. We have companies that um, will sponsor a Tuk Tuk and have their company logo on a Tuk Tuk Tuk. There's endless options. Um, but, um, you know, and I think the greatest thing about this, this project is that it's replicable globally mm. i think you can pick it up and you can put it in any country in the world and that's just not um, you know a third world country i think you could do it here maybe yes. not in, not in tuk but you know you could have it in london you could have it you know because it's a universal thing isn't it if you ask most women if they were having a taxi would they prefer a female or a male driver most women will tell you they would prefer a female driver yeah, no, I think that would be amazing. Yeah, what a what a phenomenal legacy. And this has all come from that resolve and that honouring of Rosie May, hasn't it? So I, I end these interviews on monkey business by asking people if they called their monkey mind, their chimp mind, something, and what has it mostly done for them? What would it be? What would that be in your case, Mary? don't actually have a name for it to be fair i just call it monkey chatter I've always, it, I've, I've always just called it monkey chatter that's because my yoga teacher has always called it monkey chatter i think so so i think that's that's kind of um how i've always um but you know i don't know i just i just breathe i just 
think that, um, you know, for me, I just try and stay in the present rather than um, ruminating about the past or, you know, about what happened or about what may happen. I think it's just all about kind of trying to focus and stay in the moment and in the moment and just breathe. Absolutely. One of my best pieces of advice to people all the time. Thank you so much, Mary. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for, for being so heartfelt, um, so inspirational. Um, what an incredible legacy to Rosie May. Um, I clearly didn't know her, but I feel I know her through you and through this incredible work that's being done. So it's a privilege for me as well. So thank you very much for joining us today on Monkey Business. I'm Rosalind Palmer, your host. Um, if you're watching this on video... <laughs> I'm sure you've had a lovely time. <laughs> if you're listening to this on audio, it will be cleaned up. So <laughs> thank you so much, Mary. I really appreciate it and have an amazing day. Thank you, Ross. It's been fun. Okay, bye. Bye. You've been listening to Monkey Business, a podcast with Rosalind Palmer a podcast for business people who are able to tame their monkey minds and succeed not only in business, but also the business of life. And this week's amazing guest has been Mary Story, who is CEO and founder of charity Rosie May Foundation, sharing her incredible story of how the murder of her young daughter going overseas to agree on how best to honour that terrible event and then being caught up in the tsunami led her and the charity to help support women and children in Sri Lanka and Nepal and then faced with shutdown through COVID in 2020, how the charity has pivoted to support the local community and continue its ethos and amazing work and amazing legacy to Rosie May. If you enjoyed this episode, tune in next week 